Welcome to the Unseen Unknown podcast. I'm Jasmine Bina, and in today's episode, we're speaking with Anna Angelic. Anna is an amazing brand strategist. I've been following her writing and her work for quite a while now. She has an incredible career. Most recently, she's been named to the Forbes CMO Next List, and she's really just an incredible thinker in this space. I think this is a really interesting episode because we dive deep into a few hot topics. We start by talking about commerce first media brands, something that I think is top of mind for a lot of people who want to build something that works like a great DTC brand or works like a great community built brand, but don't quite understand the initial planning and things that needs to go into a a company like that. We move on to talk about aspirational branding, something that is very personal to me. I do think aspirational branding is fool's gold and we'll dig into that a little bit more. We talk about how hacking a subculture is probably a lot more important than hacking growth, something that Anna has written about a lot. And then we ended by talking about a different set of consumer narratives, specifically motherhood. That's something that's personal to both me and Anna. And we explore how it sits in the cultural psyche, how it's been positioned for us as women and as a community, and what that means for how we navigate the world, both as people and as mothers, women, consumers, everything. I loved this talk, and I hope you guys get something out of it too. Okay, so Anna, uh, I was trying to think of how I would introduce you for this episode. And the thing is, you're so many things. I'm going to list the things that you are. Okay, (laughs) you're a strategist. (laughs) You've had many incredible roles, but two of the big ones are you're the former chief brand officer for Rebecca Minkoff. You're the former SVP and global strategy director for Havas's Lux Hub, which sounds very interesting. I hope we get to talk about that. Now you're an executive brand consultant for companies like David Yerman and Monsieur Gavriel. Not to mention the fact that you're a doctor of sociology and you're a ridiculously prolific writer who writes about all kinds of things, including brand strategy, retail, consumer behavior, marketplaces, everything. Did I miss anything? I don't think you <laughs> did. It's like, I mean, I don't know how anyone can actually listen to all of this and not be like humbled. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I'm kind of like, ah, I wish you would stop, you know? <laughs> but, you, but no, we, we need to own everything we do, I think, and whatever accomplishments we achieve. So Absolutely. I'm going to own it. So yeah, own thanks, it. thanks for the lovely introduction. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think what's fascinating about you and what I really sense when I first met you is that you really straddle two extremes. You are very well versed in the high, high level conceptual side of brand strategy, but also the extremely tactical side. And I think what's interesting and why I wanted to have this conversation with you today is that most people are either on one side or the other of the spectrum. I know I lean on one side more than the other. And when you lean on one side, there's a lot of room for BS because I think you need both ends to kind of pin down what an actual viable brand strategy is or any kind of strategy is for for a company. And I think that's what's interesting about you. And I'm going to start with a big question here. <laughs> you know, there's so much going on around brand strategy right now. People talking about the role that it plays in our lives, what it means. I think it vacillates between being something that's really kind of revered as an amazing superpower to be able to really think of a brand strategically. And then other times it's kind of seen almost as a negative connotation to it. But there is talk that's been going on for quite some time that you've also addressed about brands being the new religion. And that's such a loaded term, but I'm just going to ask you straight out to start this conversation. Are brands the new religion? I did not say that, actually. I think <laughs> that my co- that the conversations are the one that I wrote recently about was more that there are no new sources of nationalism, but not nationalism in a... It, it was more like, how do we bond with other people? How we identify with values and symbols? Mm-hmm. And what role brands play when now we don't have the civil society institutions and we don't have the role that 
stress, for example, had when mm-hmm. I refer Benedict Anderson, who is a political scientist, and he described imagined communities. His term is for how he wanted to capture the rise of national consciousness in Europe in 18th and 19th centuries, and he attributed to the rise of press. Mm-hmm. And everyone was reading same things. Everyone knew about same people and ideas. And what you identify with is how you're different from everyone else. So that the question is then do brands now, like Outdoor Voices, for example, or Tracksmith or Raf are creating that sort of bonding and identification and a sense of belonging to a specific community, which is imagined because we don't know those people. We Mm -hmm. just know that we like similar things, that we share the same values with them. So that was the idea in terms of brands and religion. I love how confident you went after that. (laughs) I really do. And I think that if that resonated with you, that you should certainly explain Explore more, but mm-hmm. I believe it's something that's been more explored. And yeah. I'll tell you why, because there was a lot of writing and people commenting on how wellness is a new religion. Yeah. Healthy eating. And then how are belonging to soul cycle or other fitness classes or fitness group body by Simone or Tracy Anderson, that that actually replaced the rituals and the communal aspect. We are going to transformative experiences with other people when we do soul cycle. So that's sort of that almost religious or or spiritual transformation. It's physical, but when you look who soul cycles trainers are, there is a lot of that element of spirituality. There. Yeah. So I think that I was not talking about that because for me, that was something that's been already explored. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking more about now that we don't have mechanisms of social cohesion that we had in the past, which is a country club, which is the as I said, the press or the media, or we are watching all the same channels or we all hang out in the same neighborhoods or, you know, like whatever, there was something that kept society together. Now, all of a sudden, the brand seemed to assume that role. And for me, that's not neutral territory. Right. And what are some examples? Like you mentioned Rafa and Outdoor Voices. Is it the actual like community building events that they have and and, like the in-store experiences? Or is it more than that? I think it goes beyond because it's, first of all, when I think Outdoor Voices is a good example. So let's stick to that one, if that's fine with you. So when the people who are buying Outdoor Voices, they're like, oh, I finally feel understood, which is all good advertising mantra, like, oh, we got you, we respond to your need, we recognize your need, we see you, we hear you. So that's like what uh, the founder of Outdoor Voices figured is like, well, people just want to look good. They want to access, they want to have fun. They want, don't want to run until they throw up. If that's for Nike, that you just want to sort of move, do things and, and look good when you're doing that, not look like, I don't know, like a silver surfer or something. So right. I think that was the first, the product was something that a lot of people sort of identified as something they needed need mm-hmm. in order to do XYZ. And then when you see when Bandier ripped off the design, they were like, whoa, you know, because yeah. they're such a big part of who their identity is as outdoor voices consumers. So think about that for a second, because you just didn't have that sort of identification. You would be like, who cares? I'll just buy from Bandier the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter. I'll just decide on price. But here they're not deciding on price. They're not deciding on convenience or availability. They're deciding, no, no, no. I belong to this imagined community of people who who value the same things as I do. This is who I identify with, with this group of people who look like me or do things like me. And then then started the hashtag, the social object, which is a hashtag, which are doing things. And it was like, oh, doing things is better than not doing things. So it's kind of like own it, have your life, live your life, like be the boss, you know, how, however, it tapped into culture. So that's a cultural moment of like doing. Yeah. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I think it's basically, it's more, I think there is just the entire brand building from saying, Hey, how am I going to bind this community together? Like I'm going to use my products as symbols. I'm going to use the social hashtag as that glue of social cohesion, because we all use the same hashtag when we are doing things that belong to this brand footprint in culture and in society. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because what we tend to forget is I always talk about how Brands should elicit a sense of transformation. You should be a different person after you've engaged with them. But what's maybe even more important is that 
you have this understanding that there are other people who you haven't met who are in this imagined community who have also experienced the same transformation. And that's why you would go to bat for a brand. That's why when Bandier does something that infringes upon outdoor voices, you're going to go and defend them online, which was actually a surprising outpouring. And I remember when I first met you too, you were talking to me. I don't know if it was that day or if it happened earlier, but that Outdoor Voices was having some sort of sample sale and the line was around the block. And you never see that with brands anymore, not even luxury brands. Totally. And you're so right, because I was going to meet you and I was walking and I'm like, wait, what? It was around. And I'm like, who are you waiting? I ask actually, because it was <laughs> on the script and there are other voices. And I'm like, wow, that's rich because like they're waiting for that leisure brand. Yeah. And then uh, sort of like more stuff started unpacking. That was a couple of years ago. That's a good point. That's what I forgot about that. You know, another brand that keeps coming up in conversations that I'm having with our clients or even when I'm doing like user interviews for some of our clients is Glossier, which I know is like a hot topic brand right now. Not least of which, you know, the reasons being because of their really, really high valuation. But they're a brand that I think has built a very strong imagined community. And there's, I I don't know where I saw it, but somebody had tweeted about the fact that if you look at brands that are D2C, they have like a certain multiple. If you look at marketplaces, they have a bit of a higher multiple. But if you look at commerce first media brands, brands like Glossier that started with media first and then monetized it around a product, their multiples are even higher. Is that kind of a testament to like where brands are going and where actual value is? Or do you think that's just a trend right now that VCs are getting a little short-sighted by the hype? Well, I think there is definitely a lot, like the hype machine is really strong with like banks and like Goldman Sachs and with VCs and then with places like Fast Company that are like hyping the new brand models, if you will, or those who are up and coming and so on. And you see that with Farfetch, which was Unicorn, you see that with Viverk's IPO, you know, so you see that a lot, but they're just saying like, all right, let's all chill for a second and (laughs) let's, you know, let's just find some like more objective criteria, Mm -hmm. you know, for like, let's just not just rush. And I think what Emily Weiss is doing really well is that how considered her growth is. Mm -hmm. So that's something that she has going on for her. She doesn't want to cut corners. She sort of walks the walk because when you see the product lines she launched with, it was very one product and then add another one and then another one and then create like dog toys. It's kind of very focused when it comes to product. She's not everything Mm -hmm. to everyone. And then if you go back one step and you said for those who were media, I think she just replaced one mean of social cohesion, which is content with another, which is products. And I think that she benefits from being in the industry where everyone has an opinion. Everyone will tell you an advice on beauty. That's like very low denominator. If you talk about, I don't know, like physics or something, like not everyone is going to have an opinion, but when it comes to like makeup or beauty or care, moisturizing, or, you know, like uh, nighttime mask, everyone is passionate about, everyone has an idea. So that is sort of easy to start that conversation because it's the barriers of participation are low Mm -hmm. and the sense of recognition is high, if you will. You yeah. have to say something stupid, you know, like everyone is sort of an influencer in that sense, because there is always, if someone is like, how do I get rid of acne? Five people are going to have an answer, you know, that's, <laughs> that's something, well, but that's true. You know, there is like the glue is very strong there. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. that's really interesting. I was just talking to somebody about this recently about, I think it was Flex. It was either Flex or Thinks. They were looking at maybe launching a community in a private Facebook group. And they would point to the fact that I think it was Flex had done really, really well there. And And I brought the fact that, yes, but women want to talk about this. There's no place to talk about this. Mm. And it affects us every month. It's very top of mind. And it touches on so many other issues like fertility, endometriosis, you know, all, all kinds of things that not necessarily taboo, but people have opinions and there's a bit of a glue there. And I would argue that that community would have done well, no matter where it was planted. It wasn't necessarily the channel, but it's interesting the way you described it. I want to ask you, what did you think of Glossier play? What do you mean? Well, I mean, you talk about how her product launches are very deliberate and that was, that was, that came out to a lot of fanfare. I was very excited about it. They teased it really well. 
but it, it it did seem like an extension of what they already had, but into maybe a more colorful, playful territory of a, a different kind of makeup. Do you think that that was on brand for them? Like, what did you think they were trying to do with the trajectory of the company with that launch? I mean, I, again, I'll go back to that. Like, I don't think it matters. I think she has a very strong base. She is clearly profitable. A lot of brands look at that like BFF, chatty tone of voice. It's easy to have that at a very, very low price point. But that's good because like the price points are very accessible. So everyone can participate. And that's sort of an idea. Mm -hmm. And you know what? The other thing that's very smart is really like her customers do the advertising work for her. You know what I mean? Because they are basically talking about how they use products, what they can do. So I don't think that plays any different in that sense. Like, yeah, sure, you can have its iteration. And that's smart. You don't need to invent new products and services all the time. You can iterate on what's been working before. So I think in that sense, it's really, it's sort of on brand and it's iteration of what, what, what she has already done. The other thing too that I think is interesting because I everybody's trying to figure out what the magic sauce is with this brand, is that they are talking about natural beauty at a very interesting time to be talking about natural beauty. And they're creating space for a conversation around what it means to have natural beauty for girls at a specific age where they're negotiating what their femininity means. They're trying to figure out how they're going to present themselves in the world. And I think she kind of created a voice and a media and a product around that idea, that new definition of beauty, new or reimagined or whatever you want to call it, right. that kind of created a little bit of tension. It got people talking and interested in a different way. It was an alternative narrative that maybe didn't exist the way that she brought it out. I agree with that a lot. And especially, like, think about the demographics she's after, like millennials and younger millennials, Gen Z as well. And so how they actually relate to each other, to brands and to themselves and yeah. how their identity is. Because when you look like, for example, Rihanna Fenty Beauty, her entire thing is like beauty for all. And she has like men wearing her foundation. So it, like for that, that is really, and she, she sort of introduced that the 50 plus palette started with 40 and yeah. that was sort of something that traditional beauty industry didn't do. And I think this sort of BFF tone of voice that Emily Weiss introduced and how she allowed basically her customers to do the work of the brand, not in a negative sense, but in a positive mm -hmm. sense in terms of like, all right, we know each other already. We exchanged content. We talked about different things for years on into the gloss blog. And mm -hmm. now I'm giving you those products go, you know, there's a bunch of products go show me what you can do with that. Yeah. I don't think that any beauty company they're talking about to express yourself and blah, blah. But then there is no place for that. There is no call to action beyond just the advertising tagline in a sense, oh, if I'm going to experiment, however, I want to make a foundation and I'm going to share to that, I'm going to get feedback that everyone has a little influencer feedback loop and then a little own community. Right, right. Yeah. And one final sorry thing, I think that it also coincided with the extreme rise of beauty tutorials on YouTube. So yeah. let's not forget about the entire media ecosystem that allowed that to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings me to the next point. You wrote something once that just stopped me dead in my tracks that I think about all the time. You said that hacking a subculture is greater than hacking growth. And you had talked about Harry's and Dollar Shave Club. I don't want to paraphrase for you. Can you describe that a little bit more? Yes. I think that the article you're referring to the analysis is like how hacking culture is more important than, than hacking growth in a sense that what we think the most innovative products and services are actually results of the effects of social influence, which means they were not able to exist in a vacuum. The social mm -hmm. processes gave rise to them. And often we mistake disruption for social influence. So what, what that means in plain language is that if society is ready to embrace a trend, anyone can start one. 
yeah. to Dollar Shave Club and Harry's as examples because they're like, oh my God, they were so innovative companies. They disrupted the industry and made it as well be. The thing is that the report a year before those companies launched was already capturing the changing uh, grooming habits of men. So men's behavior was already starting to change. The atmosphere was already starting to change. And Japanese have a great expression, kuki wo yomo, which says, read the room, read the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And that means what is unspoken, what is going on in the zeitgeist that no one really captured tangibly yet, but it's in the air in a sense. So it was, I don't know, rebellion in fashion a few years ago, or yeah. that sort of changing notions of masculinity and changing notions of men's, what men's grooming is. So when those companies came in, they, they piggybacked on that wider societal, social trend of changing notions of masculinity. And that's why I say social influence is often mistaken for disruption, because what we're seeing that those companies capitalize on social influence, basically. Their message was met with the fertile soil for people to say, hey, we understand this is for us. So it was only the fertile soil. But if they tried to do that five years earlier, three years earlier, they wouldn't have been as successful. I don't know if people would read this and think like it's obvious or if it, they think it's profound. I think it's profound because a lot of people miss this. They, they think, you know, disruption has to be in the product and they don't understand how companies like Harry's and Dollar Shave Club can be such huge successes. And it's because they don't understand that really, I mean, if I can paraphrase, they were reading a trend before it was apparent. And, and trend is, isn't the right word. They were reading like a, a real fundamental shift in what people were willing to consume, how they were willing to relate to not just a product, but also their own masculinity and their own identities. And they created a story around what that could mean. They, they gave people like a pathway to kind of realizing what that was. And that's not, that's not a small thing. And I think that's, I personally feel like that's what's really exciting about branding. There's there's a, a similar parallel in technology. I don't remember who said it. This is a fantastic conversation of not remembering who said what. But <laughs> well, you have you have like babies. At least you can. What my excuse? <laughs> I should take better notes. But yes, there in technology is a similar thing where people. Uh, it's it's widely believed that when a technology comes out, it changes our behaviors, but. There's a body of research that suggests that, no, people are already starting to exhibit some of the behaviors that would make that technology adoptable. So the idea was that maybe there were signs that people were more and more willing to share, to tap into the wisdom of the group, things like that, that translate into these technologies where you share cars, you read reviews, you trust user reviews and peer reviews. And that it's not the technology-leading culture, it's culture-leading technology. And I think it parallels to what you're saying here, even in CPG and D2C. That's exactly that, yeah. Yeah, 100%. So you mentioned Rihanna a second ago, and I I wanted to pause on, on her for a moment. Now, it's tell me why you think her brands are doing so well. And I know a lot of it is because of her commitment to inclusivity, but is there more to it than that? I think there is a confluence. It's the right time. So the time is really good. And I'll tell you why. There is a confluence, a number of factors. For one, she is this strong entrepreneurial woman. So you can't really take that. Even if she just stayed in music, that would still be something that she is, Mm -hmm. you know. And then when she kind of goes and does Fenty Beauty and when she partners with LVMH. And so that is some believability there. It's not just celebrity because, I mean, brands have partnered with celebrities for the longest time to move the needle of of their business. So that's not really new. And also it's not new that celebrities launch their own brands. I mean, look at the hip hop scene at the end of the 90s with Jay-Z Rockaway, with Sean John and so on. So I think that's sort of like, fine. She has that going on for her, but that's something that it's now anyone almost with social media, any celebrity can be like, Hey, I'm launching a fashion brand or something. And Mm -hmm. many of them do. So for me, what was more notable is like, how do you figure out which celebrity brands are going to last longer than other celebrity brands? So it's more like, do you have some wider purpose or mission here? What is your role in culture? And for Rihanna was like that beauty for all. She has that sort of inclusivity and she uses her own success story as sort of a role 
model for a lot of people who see and get inspired by that. So she kind of has that like platform, but she is more than just herself. What she represents is right what I said at the beginning of what, when I started talking about this is that she is strong female entrepreneur. And now the time the culture supports, we root automatically for female entrepreneurs. We want them to succeed. Yeah. We identify for them. So now there is that culture where it's like, you go girl. So I think that's really good. People are going to pay attention if a woman goes for it. At the same time, she was one of the most innovative companies on Times list in 2017. And that's because she introduced 50 shades of foundation, which is something mm -hmm. that's crazy enough. In 2017, no other beauty company has done. Mm -hmm. So her celebrity is underpinned with product innovation. And even with LVMH, okay, LVMH may be like this or that, however you want to call that collaboration. But even there, she's like, well, you know what? I'm going to release when I feel like releasing. So I'm going to have this drop model. I'm going to have a website and I'm just going to like check out. And when it's there, it's there. When it's not there, it's not there. Forget about the fashion calendar. Forget about the fashion system. So even there, she's doing her thing. And that sort of innovation, because there is no other LVMH brand that is doing it like that. So how would you compare someone like Rihanna to somebody like Kylie? Well, for me, the thing is, I don't really know, it may be me, I'm giving that possibility, that I don't know what Kylie stands for aside of being Kylie, aside of Kylie. So what is that wider purpose? What is their wider mission? Like Rihanna has beauty for all. What does Kylie have? I think that Kylie does have going on for her, that girl boss, female entrepreneur thing that we root for her, that she actually achieved something. But for me, like she was on a billionaire's list where Pat McGrath was a, a makeup artist, launched her line. And she also is a woman of color and is a female entrepreneur. And for some reason, Kylie got way more attention in media than Pat McGrath. I see. So yeah. I don't know what is the dynamic there, but like Rihanna sort of went beyond that and say, hey, my idea is beautiful for all. And I'm really delivering on it, this promise through my unbelievably diverse foundation line. That yeah. is something that I'm going to keep innovating on. And also Kylie's, what is her innovation in her product? That's what I don't get. Like, yeah, is it well, innovative or is it yeah. one-off? So for Kylie, it's a typical celebrity brand that just uses her celebrity to sell her products. Once people cancel Kylie, they cancel her business. And <laughs> it's much higher, right? And it's yeah. much harder to cancel Rihanna because her products are not about Rihanna. Her products are about you, about all of us. You've hit on something so big. And I think it also kind of tracks with the way brands have evolved from 1.0 to 2.0. This idea of creating something aspirational is really, I feel like so many people try to build that with their brands. And aspiration, I feel, is fool's gold at this point. It's never going to take you in the long term. But when you're creating something that's larger than one person, I don't know if that's lifestyle or something bigger than that. But like you said, Rihanna, it's so much bigger than just her name. And you feel that. You feel the gravity of the message whenever you engage with the brand, whether it's at the counter at Sephora or through any of the content that she's putting out or even you know, just seeing what she puts on Instagram. It's something that, like you said, you can't cancel it because it's a larger idea that, by the way, also will evolve and grow and can be reinvented and redefined and change and live a much longer life than something that's just attached to one aspiration, one person's specific image. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So while we're on the topic... I feel like I hear people saying influencers are dead, long live the influencer. <laughs> Where are we with influencers? Like, what's your take on that? Influencers are not dead. They're alive and well, and they're like moving product like nobody's business. <laughs> <laughs> so let's keep that in mind. Biggest beauty brands, I mean, biggest, let's say the, the fastest growing beauty brands comparatively are those created by influencers or propelled by them and so on. So I don't think, I think that we are now like seeing, it, it's, it's like with every industry that is maturing. And mm -hmm. then you have certain practices that are no longer very efficient at the end of the day. There's the same thing when you had like for luxury advertising, print, 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 print. Condonese has like black cars for everyone, refinancing your house, you know, like unbelievable mm -hmm. amount of salaries and so on. Because, you know, like, oh, 
you advertise in Vogue, you pay arm and leg millions of dollars and, you know, <laughs> money makes the world go round, you know? So it's sort uh -huh. of like life is good. And then all of a sudden there is churing of the how you communicate, new generation of consumers, new technologies of communication. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, 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 knocking on the door, Vogue, Vogue is calling. No one wants to pick up the phone, you know? Mm. So it's it, that's what I think. It's like influencers, that early influencers, they really capitalized on that newness of the new technology and the fact that people were like, oh my God, if no one is reading print and everyone is on Instagram or on social media, we're going to employ influencers as media, actually. The problem is no one actually said we are using influencers as media. Everyone was like, very muddled about what does that really mean? Does it drive product sales? Well, not necessarily because you basically bought a TV ad. So you don't have yeah. any idea which percent of your advertising is working because you're just awareness play. Like, let's be honest, like it, you're not going to necessarily drive sales if you hire an influencer. You may get impressions, you may get reach, the same as mass media. So it's always like how you pay influencers, they're very obscure. And also what do you expect from influencers? What is the ROI? What are the KPIs? APIs, again, very obscure, but it doesn't have to be. Because if you say we are going to pay influencers CPM, the same mm -hmm. way we are paying publishers or, or media companies when we place advertising there. Okay. So, you know, I think it's more around like strategy around that and more about business rigor than the actual do influencers work, don't work. They work sometimes, they don't work other times. And it depends on which area you can like go, like Oprah can do anything, but you're not going to go Kylie for a book recommendation. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it's just like what you said, we're moving from aspiration to something bigger and the influencers that are diversifying their portfolios in a way that shows that they believe in something larger than themselves. That's interesting. I think Chriselle Lim is, I don't know if she's actually announced it yet, but she was talking about co-working space for parents. I think that's what she was going to announce, which to me sounds very exciting because it shows that this is not just trying to have her lifestyle or to emulate who she is. It's trying to explore what it means to be a different kind of person in this world, a professional mother, a girl boss, like you were saying, which is apparently... I a, hate a, that, Nay. I hate that. Why? Why do people hate I that? Why? Know. Why? I hate all the <laughs> Because it's kind of like, I don't, I mean, why girl boss? Why, like, first of all, why infantilizing that? Like, if you infantilize it, then it's like, what? It's less sort of threatening to, to guys is it can be like a woman you know what I mean it's kind of like the fearless girl it has to be a girl because it's like girls are not as intimidating as grown right. men I don't know so that's one and then second of all it just became like this blanket thing well yes okay so I think that's also a good strength I don't know the full origin of that phrase because the first time I heard it was Sofia Amoroso's yes. book which was right. called Girl Boss so I'm guessing there's a reason to it and I don't know what it is but terms like that, even though we, we, we come to deride them after a while, they did something. They did some heavy lifting at For some sure. point. Like I they, think that's, again, that thing, like they capture the moment when we all are willing to support more openly and we really champion those who are very entrepreneurial, like yourself, you know, you're the girl boss, you know, but I would not, I mean, like, you know, it would be hard for me. You're so much more. I think you're right. I, I'm going to take that back because I think you're right. They, they do the heavy lifting and they actually create, capture the moment in a very tangible form as words, as labels, as symbols. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, I, I, I think so too. You're a badass girl boss. How about that? <laughs> I'll take that. Okay. You Thank should. you. Absolutely. Yeah, we didn't talk about your credentials. I will talk about, I'll introduce you at the end. <laughs> okay, we'll let you do that. But let's talk about some more personal stuff. I do want to talk about you as a person. I feel like a lot of times when I'm listening to incredible people speak, I want to know them as people. And you know, I'll let you do that however you want. I will say, though, I did notice that you were reading recently Sheila Hetty's book, Motherhood, which I'm interested in reading as well. But I know it talks about some tough things around what motherhood is. I recently became a mother. Motherhood is top of mind for almost everybody in my sphere. I think also it's, you know, while we're talking about girl bosses, while we're talking about female entrepreneurs, this idea of being a woman who can also be a mother, 
I'll tell you personally, you see the challenge for me when I was pregnant with my twins. I saw the challenge as exciting. I was going to still stay the badass girl boss that I was, and I was going to raise these twins, and I wasn't going to slow down. And I was going to prove that, you know, I know lean in has as kind of become a dirty phrase at this point, but I was going to find a way to make it all work. I just didn't want to believe that I would have to compromise. And then the kids came and you realize that you still want all those things, but it becomes really, really complicated because there's a lot of emotional stuff behind the scenes that happens in terms of you have to figure out what kind of a mother you want to be. You meet your children for the first time. They're their own people. You don't know who they're going to be before they come. You realize that your relationship grows in interesting ways and exciting ways, but also ways that you want to protect over time. And you're constantly moving between who am I as a woman and who am I as a mother? And I've always felt it was important. I mean, it sounds cliche. Yes, everybody should be able to define motherhood the way that, that they want. But I feel like nobody tells the stories that are really important. One, motherhood, I don't... I think that's a conspiracy of those who had kids to lure us who didn't. Yeah, I don't think it's for everybody. <laughs> even if you're a mother, that's not what I'm getting at. Is even if you're a mother, that's not your whole being. I knew for me, being only a mother wasn't going to be fully satisfying. And that's a hard realization to come to because people will judge you for it. And it's hard to be a mother plus XYZ. That's difficult. Anyways. So I think what you just said is impressive and very eloquent and truly honest and amazing. And I think it warrants a podcast of its own. So think about it <laughs> because I think that in a great number of cases, there is that lack of honesty and it's not on purpose. It's not intentional. It's just that we are conditioned to want certain things or to feel like we are meant to feel or to follow a path that's accepted and not I mean, it's hard to self-explore and to question. And I'm at the other side of the same coin that you were sort of describing in terms of identity, because for me, it's like, am I missing out on certain parts of my identity if I don't ever decide to be a mother? Yeah. Am I closing the door? Am I not opening the door that is maybe great that I never knew that I had in me? Am I a poorer person for not having kids? Yeah. And, or at the same time is, but do I feel that I need to have kids because everyone else is having them? And that's sort of an expectation. I never paid much attention to what people think. I've been blessed with just not caring. But mm -hmm. this is one of the things that is like on my individual identity level, I'm asking myself. And then on also how we internalize society. I'm saying, well, am I being like, you know, that usual label is like, if I don't have kids, I'm going to be labeled as selfish. And yes. then, uh, that is still very prevalent in this day and age, which is, we may be like surprised by it, but that's, am I going to be judged because I didn't have kids? So that's sort yes. of like having a kid is almost like this ticket into belonging. Like, do oh, yeah. Oh, let me tell you. <laughs> yes, I felt like after I had the kids, there was this whole shadow world that I didn't even see right in front of me. And suddenly I was making new friends, meeting new people, being entered into new spaces that I just wasn't allowed into before because I wasn't a parent. And, you know, when you say that you were born without this gene or whatever, that you don't care about what other people think, that's a gigantic fucking blessing because <laughs> I felt when I was trying to make this decision for myself, I couldn't even separate who I was from what the world told me I should be. I don't think I even ever got there. I don't think I ever got to a fully clear-headed space. All I know was that when I met the right person and I kind of became more of a confident person myself, I stopped being afraid of it. That's, the, that's as far as I got. But, you know, and then other women, I think, do really feel, I, I know these women who feel like it's their calling and that's a blessing too. But it, I don't think it happens to most women, at least not in my experience. And I think it takes a tremendous person to know, a tremendous woman, let's say, to really, really hear their authentic voice when it comes to motherhood. Because it's, it's tied to so many things. Like you talk about the selfish label. I felt an ugly label. I felt like if you don't have children, it's an indictment of your femininity. Your value is like an actual female. Like you're not a real woman if you don't have children. 
Oh wow! And I don't have that. That's it. <laughs> that's it. I think, but you see, it's also like reflected through who we are. You know what we think because I think that I am already a selfish person. You know, like just owning <laughs> it. And I think you see, for me, it was like, oh, they're going to think like that's ultimate selfish act that you care only about. You know, you don't. And for you, whoever, however, that sort of like retracted how you feel about yourself. Yeah. It was like, oh, I'm not fulfilling my potential or I'm not being fully a woman if I, you know, so maybe that's yeah. your own sense of female identity, but you see how complex that is. And I think being able to honestly talk about it, not just be like, oh, I'll guess I have kids because if I wait, I won't be able to have them. That's like the worst, I think, decision yes. process. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And that was the other big thing. I don't want to mislead anyone, but you know, we heard plenty of stories of people who were afraid that they waited too long, but I was 37 when I had my children and it was only after I had them that I started to hear so many stories of women who waited quite long into their late thirties, early forties, who were still able to have kids. And I know that's not necessarily the norm, but you're always hearing, my husband calls it the survivorship bias. You're always hearing the real extreme stories. Mm -hmm. You never hear the more moderate ones. I also feel like media is a little sexist because you always hear these negative stories in the media as well. And it, it just feeds this constant fear machine that women have. And I, I again, I really want to be respectful of people who have legitimate fears about things. And, and I realize everybody's experience is completely different. I get that. But I do not feel like enough experiences are being put out there for people to consume so that they can find themselves in other people's experiences. There's one place, though, and I just remembered it. So the New York Times is a conception series. Have you seen that? Mm -mm, no. It's amazing. So it's an animated series, and it's like two or three minute shorts where women speak about their experiences with motherhood, non-motherhood, abortion. Well, I probably blocked it. Like, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Mentally blocked it. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Because for me, it's a conspiracy. Everyone who has kids conspire against those who don't. You know what I mean? And yeah. they're like, oh, no, no, it's amazing. It's amazing. You should have kids, like unlock emotions and blah. And then you're like, you do it and you're like, oh my God, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I I don't know, but you know, like, that's why it was like so refreshing and how honest you were really and how complicated it is. It's, it's very, very complicated. And then of course, there's the question of afterwards, like these two perfect little humans were born to me and you fall deeply in love. And then you're suddenly have this new fear of like, how am I going to protect them in the world? And all this and like, you're trying to negotiate a career at the same time. Like all that is happening at the same time. That is that also like indoctrination that is like, oh, you can do it all. Well, maybe not, you know, and maybe not everything perfectly. You know, I think that's very detrimental, you know, Yeah. that to yeah. think that you can do it all and like, and also why, you know, okay, fine. If you have like financial reasons and so on, then you manage that situation. But just because you compare yourself to others and you think they do it all, well, no one does it alone. Yes. So, oh, that's an excellent point. Yeah. And I think we need to more of that co collective narrative of success. Mm -hmm. Who are those people who help you, who have your back, who prop you up? There is this like terrible narrative of success as individual achievement. And that's my problem with Charlie Sandberg's lean in. It's individual mm. achievement. It's not a collective version of success. You know, that's such a good point. I feel like when I tell people about my experience, I have to tell them there are so many people helping me. And I am so, so fortunate that I have so many people supporting our little family. And that idea of the lone genius or the, the lone hero, that's a very American thing. I don't know if you see that too much outside of the US. I might be wrong. But if you look at all of our literature, if you look at the people that we turn into heroes, the stories that we tell about them, it is always the individual, for sure. Well, that um, is of American individualism is a very real trait. So I yes. absolutely that part of it is like lone inventor, the lone, you know, the, the discoverer who goes into like the lone rider definitely is a big, but I think especially in this modern femininity, I think like for so long, women are predicated. There is one seat at the table. There is a competition. And I think I, I love that I'm seeing now more and more talking about like, women helping each other, propping each other up, having a network, that sort of recognizing that you can't achieve anything alone. Yeah. And yeah. I think there is like, there needs more that feminine aspect to say, hey, it takes a village or it's a, my entire community. It's not, but I think there is still undue pressure of women to 
do all of that, be successful in their job and be a great mother and hold the family, you know, like it's still a remnant of the past, I would say. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, I have definitely felt shame that I have needed help, Mm. which is ridiculous to think about it like that, because why why the hell wouldn't I need help? And why shouldn't I be looking for it wherever I can get it? But I've definitely felt that. And it's very detrimental. Absolutely. Because not all of us need to be super women. It's not about being a super woman at all. It's about being smart and knowing how to emphasize your strengths and how to live a full life without killing yourself. (laughs) Yes. And that's only like... Yeah, that's only half joking the killing yourself part because you can get there so fast. No, it really is. It's like you have to ask yourself for who, for what? Like, who are you trying to impress? You know, because it's not even yourself. Like, we should be more like gentle to ourselves and you should mother yourself as much as you mother your two boys. That's, yeah, very, very true. I don't want to tie this back too much to branding, but I did want to ask you about women's brands. We talked about Rihanna and Kylie and, you know, Outdoor Voices and all these women-founded companies. And now we're talking about motherhood and, and really femalehood, what it means to be a woman. What do you think is going on with major women's brands? Do you feel like we're having a true renaissance? Do you feel like there's something big on the horizon? What's happening in the gender world when it comes to branding? What I think is now everyone is on like a lookout, you know, it's kind of mm-hmm. like high alert situation. And I think, and, and then across industries, it's more advertising output is very aware of portrayal for mm-hmm. women. And I mean, the truth to be told, there is still too many men selling products to women. And that's still very true across agencies and and companies. And there is not still enough diversity and there is still not enough multiple voices overall. So let's say that's overall state of affairs. But I think that there is that like high alert, high sensitivity about representation. Right. I totally agree. It's funny. I was looking for examples of men's brands that were founded by women, like purely men's brands founded by women. And I even put a Quora question up. Nobody could think of anything. Well, Prada is uh, that one of them. But, but, but Prada is men's and women's. True. So you wanted just men. Like some, yeah, because there are plenty of men who have created products just for women. There's, I think they're called something in Alps or they're a, a self-care brand for men that got big in Target recently. They, I know, are one of the few modern brands where it was, I think it was two female co-founders that founded it and created something for men. But it's just absolutely not the norm. It goes in one direction, but not the other. I think we are still very early in that entire evolution. And I think like 20 years, like next generation consumers are going to look back or advertising people are going to be, look back and like think how primitive <laughs> these are. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. That's great. Unenlightened. Because right now we are still at the stage of celebrating women being entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Just that. And then we are celebrating women making things for other women, you know, like we are just that, oh, uh, women are starting like companies in fashion or in beauty or in, I don't know, wellness. All it's very like soft. Mm-hmm. And then I think the next step is, is like, okay, the same way when the female CEOs at companies are there, you're going to be like, okay, it doesn't really matter if you're a man or a woman, you can just go. And if you're passionate about making a leisure for men or men's skincare, or even if you're passionate about providing like a software technology, go for it. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. So I think yeah. right now we're still, when you, because when you think about it, it's like forever, VCs wouldn't get women funding for mm-hmm. in the longest times. And then the VC's wives were like, oh yeah, you should fund because I would use that or blah, you know? I mean, it's not a blanket statement, but the mm-hmm. point is that first it was very hard for women to get any funding, even the areas they were absolute experts on, maybe instinctively so. Mm-hmm. And let's get first over that hurdle. And then when a woman goes in and she's an engineer and she wants to pitch a new, like a bio silk or a spider silk or a new biotechnology, then then it's going to be. Yeah, so we're in the early stages then. Very, and it's a systemic challenge. But again, it's good that we have words, as you said, like girl boss, and it's good that the representation is changing and Mm -hmm. that we are seeing more diverse ethnicities in advertising because that's also a challenge. 
Yes, that's a big conversation. I, maybe you and I can have it next time. You know, who is allowed to tell which stories? Are you allowed to tell a story that isn't your own? And I think a lot of people bristle at that, but it's because they haven't really paused to think about the question. Maybe you and I can talk about that next time. Maybe next time. That's a really, really <laughs> like damn if you do, damn if you don't, you know, like, because if you talk about your own culture, and your culture happened to, to be male and white, then you are accused of not talking about other cultures. But yeah. when you talk about other cultures, then you are appropriating them and you're disrespecting the depth of those cultures. So I, yeah, again, let's see how this plays out because we are seeing a great acceleration and I think there's great positive steps in the direction of being more uh, equal. But let's first close the pay gap, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's your own brand. It picks me directly. <laughs> I agree. Let's tackle that one first. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. This was a fascinating conversation. I'm sorry that we have to wrap it up. Thank you for being so generous with your thinking and your insights and the self-reflection. It was really a delight talking to you. Well, likewise. And I mean, thank you for such amazing and thoughtful questions and a fantastic atmosphere that you created of honesty or of exchanging ideas. And I, you know what? I'm going to do like fem more female podcasts. This is so much better than talking to God. <laughs> it's kind of like, I mean, you are one of a kind, like all of us are of course unique, <laughs> but I think that you're really very special in both the way you think and what you achieved and how you have your own company. You're the CEO of your own company mm -hmm. and you had two kids and you were also very, I don't know, thoughtful writer because when you, when you write, I read that stuff, you know? <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Well, I mean, we are bombarded with so many like grifters and, you know, just like people. So it, it's very hard to find someone who thought things through. And uh, that's, I think, how we initially met because I read something of yours and then I sent you a note. And honestly, I never do that. It's just uh, the bar is really high. So I was impressed by how curious you are. And you're wearing so many hats at the same time as well. So I don't know how would I describe you either. Like, well, how would you describe you? Give me like three words. How would you describe yourself? Ooh, okay. I would say definitely exploring. I feel like really I always want to explore the frontier of whatever it is I'm studying. I try to be generous and I try to be reflective too. I, those are the three words I would use. So not my titles, but the way I try to live my life, I guess. Well, it comes across very clearly. So you nailed that in terms of brand consistency and brand purpose. <laughs> I, I can't wait for the great, greater things that you're oh, going to do. Oh, thank you. And so thanks for, for allowing me to be part of your journey. Oh, Anna, thank you so much. All right. Till we talk again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. 